Welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And to say I'm ex- excited about, the, about this week's guest would be an understatement because I've been waiting, I think, almost two years to get you on the show, James, <laughs> James Holland. I've, well, I've yes, had your brother... You. Your brother, the, yes. Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, no. but the much more famous and distinguished historian. Yes, king of tweets. And and now you're here, and I just love your new book, which we're going to talk about. Oh, I, thank I, you. I, I, may, I, 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 honestly, when, when you told me that, it actually made my day, I have to oh, say. That, the, I, I'm touched that you even care what I think. Well, I, uh, do, it, I do, do you? Um, that's good. Um, you also have just started in the, the podcasting game. Yeah. Called We Have Ways. We yeah, have ways. It's enormously good fun. With Al Murray, yeah. were, were you were you headhunted? I mean, because I, I know it, it's put out on one of those podcast companies, isn't it? Well, it's put out by Goldhanger Films, which is owned by Tony Pastor and Gary Lineker, and they mainly have been doing sort of sports stuff, as you would imagine. Yeah, and they do a lot of sports television stuff, but they they do a very successful one with Gary and um, Danny Baker, right? And they've just started up another one with um, Stuart Broad and Stephen Fry on cricket. Um, and I, I've known Al for quite a long time, and I know how much he loves and interested in the Second War. World War. Yeah, he does. He's very interested in all that. And he's incredibly well read. Um, you know, he's read more than I have, uh, which is sometimes a bit embarrassing. But um, yeah, well, you know, it seems an comic. obvious thing because you know, I mean, both of us just love. You know, we, we from time to time we sort of meet up, have lunch, have a few pints, and kind of sort of chew the card about World War Two, yeah. uh, and really enjoy it. So basically, the podcast is just an extension of that. And We're quite get, good. We don't drink lots of pints of lager, but we... You get to do cool stuff like go to the Tank Museum. Yeah, we do do that. And actually, we always realise we're doing sort of a bit more of that kind of stuff. So kind of, you know, we've got all sorts of things on the list, including, sort of interest you, the 30 core trip to... Um, uh, to which they're in September. They've got 300 vehicles. I mean, oh, what's fantastic. What, advancing on that, on the top of a dike. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, yeah. So and, we're and going to sort of skip, like... taken out by Panzerfausts. Like, all that, yeah. yeah. So we're going, to, we're going to sort of, you know, skip between, um, I don't know, Morris, Morris commercials and Sherman Fireflies and Cromwells and things. Can I just point out that you're doing the very thing I told you not to do, which is that you're moving your head from side to side. And, and uh, I, it's I? only because okay. I know people are going to complain. Okay, right, okay. I'll stop doing do that. You, do you find this, with just technical question here, when you do your, your podcast, I mean, do you have any, do you have a, a team to help you with the sound? Yes. Or do you, are you bastards? Yeah, we do, I'm afraid. So we have, you know, we have Spike and John who come. You see, I could do with a Spike and John. It would, yeah. it would certainly. And Tony, actually, he, he owns Goldhanger. Because um, I've got, I've got a secret team. I've got somebody who irons out all the sound problems. Right. And and uh, he's very good. He's called Jason. And I've got a man who lives in the called Richard. He lives in the backwoods of Canada. Right. And is he just puts up all the stuff? He, he, Amazing. Like like pro bono. And so what happens? You you sort of he gets paid a little bit every no. month. No, no, because we because it's not a it's not a revenue generating thing at the moment. And ah. actually, I've got, because I haven't got Gary Lineker backing me and promoting me. I I used to have Breitbart, right. and and then they dropped the podcast because they said that. Um, no one you weren't being political. No one, li- no, no, no one listens to podcasts. They said what? No, no, I know. They, Everyone they, listens. To it's, podcasts. It's, a, it's a saturated market. You, you can't monetize it. Uh, no one cares. We're, we're dropping all our podcasts. And unfortunately, I didn't get the feed, the, the, the old feed. So I lost about a hundred thousand listeners, which ah. I'm trying to claw back now. Yeah. But I'm. But even 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 today on Twitter, somebody said to me. Just rediscovered your podcast. I didn't realise that you were still doing it, and that it, 
hello. I mean, if 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 I if I'd love the Dunning Pod podcast as much as everyone does, I mean, because I mean, it is kind of good. I think I would dedicate my life to to to, to ensuring to tracking down the the, the replacement r- rather than just, <laughs> you would have thought so. Yeah, well, you you'd have thought so. Anyway, look, I loved your last book, which unfortunately we haven't got space to talk about. But it was about well, just very briefly because it was so good. It was about an ill ill covered story of World War Two wasn't the Battle of the Admin Box is not oh, much known yes. about. No, it's not at all. And and you know, I kind of thought this is this is going to be the death of my career writing about this because, you know, you do sort of you know, you have to sort of remember that however much fun it is, this is also, you know, you're trying to put bread on the table, etc. So yeah. you've got to kind of you know, you've got to do the big hitters. Um and uh, Burma is not a well trod subject full stop. Um, and if you are going to go to Burma, you sort of really want to be heading straight towards Kahima and Imphal, yeah. uh, or the kind of sort of last 1945. But um, Admin Box is completely forgotten about. But I'd read about the Admin Box, and I thought, what an amazing story. It's kind of sort of Rourke's drift, but kind of sort of morally just a little bit more kind of um, less dubious. Well, do you not think that the best stories, the, the, the stories that show the British Army at its very best in World War Two? Other ones from the from that theatre, the, the the Forgotten Army, Slim being the, fa- the fantastic general working with with very limited resources. I, I mean, yeah, I, I I think there is there is a um, a big argument for that. I mean, but Burma is just such an incomparable place to get your you know just trying to sort of get your head around the logistics of it and. As I'm sure you're aware, I'm quite interested on that operational side of things, that like logistics of war and yeah. how you actually sort of make it happen. Because there's so much, you know, in the in the narrative of the Second World War, there's so much assumed knowledge. You know, they have tigers, they had really good machine guns, or whatever it might be. And, and, and you know, they were in the jungle. Yeah. No one ever sort of thinks, well, actually, if you've got lots of sort of Maharatis and, and Punjabis and Gurkhas yeah. and, and Scousers uh, and Yorkshiremen, you know, how do you feed them all? And, and how do you get that to the jungle? I mean, so I think all that's really, really interesting. Yeah. And, and what is just so stunning about 14th Army's victory is how they overcome that. And it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, 30 different ration scales a day is just insane. Um, you know, to build a, uh, to build a road to, to get the supplies forward in the yeah. Arakan, just in the Arakan, which is comparatively a sideshow compared to what's going to come, they build an entire new road made of bricks. And they create ovens, you know, brick furnaces, all the way down from kind of what was then Bengal, now Bangladesh, down to the Mayu range in in what is now Rohin State. I mean, it, it is just, it just but makes you the, wonder how on earth they ever managed it. But also, isn't it what makes it so exciting? We're going to come, I, I'm going to let you, indulge you on the logistics in a moment, when we talk about D-Day. But isn't it also the reason that the Burma campaign is so exciting, is it's probably the closest that our fighting men came to having the experience that the Germans and the Russians had at, 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 at Stalingrad. You know, it's that mano a mano, just really down and dirty fighting. The kind of thing that when you're a schoolboy and you don't know much about war, you think that's what war is all about. It's about bayonet charges. It's about last stands. But that, that I think, was probably the rawest experience that any British soldiers had. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about the Admin Box, I mean, for those who don't know, um, the 7th Indian Division sort of basically got got, got surrounded by the Japanese yeah. and just had to stand firm. They had to hold out. That's what they had to do. Yeah. They, uh, uh, because the Japanese operated very lightly and they kind of fed off what they what they won. So if you deny them it's that, nice, basically. if you deny them food and ammunition, yeah. then obviously they're going to run out. And there's one place you do not want to be running out of either is in the jungle of the Arakan, now Rohin State. Uh, and they, you know, the British and, and the Indians hold their, and Gurkhas managed to hold their nerve. And th- there's an amazing description of a guy in a tank, a, a, in a British tank, um, 
and he's on sort of night watch with his the leaguer of his squadron. And, you know, there's these mists that come down every night. And he's just nodding off. He, he's not supposed to nod off, of course, because he's on sentry duty, but he is nodding off. Yeah. And suddenly he hears this little squeak. And he goes, oh, immediately, kind of sort of woken up in a yeah. flash. And the squeak, he suddenly, his brain manages to compute it in its groggy state very quickly into, I know what that is. That's the lever of a Japanese soldier's webbing. No. Yes. And immediately he just goes, he's wide awake. And someone else hears the same thing. Um, and moments later, kind of, you know, everyone's, the, the firing starts as tracing yeah. across the area, you know, and they cut these Japanese down to down to shreds but you know these are people who are creeping up on you out of a strange jungle in the middle of the night through the mist with really sharp swords it, and it's say, just yeah. utterly terrible it's like a zombie attack I mean you know it's like something out of the sort of when they get you they're not going to take you prisoner or, no. or, and if they do and if they do worse. they're then going to kind of sort of you know castrate you and chop off your knob and put it in your mouth and, and, and crucify you or something I mean just really horrible end yes exactly there was the, there was that scene wasn't there at the beginning of platoon rather similar to that where he's looking and, and he's in charge yes. creeping in on the on the camp, God, i so. must see that film again yeah it's been a while since i've watched it i was talking to my son about it saying you know all vietnam films that's the one to watch i hope your how many kids have you got i've got two i hope they're into war like dad they're, they're not actually no daisy he's 11 he, she's she's quite up for kind of sort of going on a ride on a tank or something yeah. um uh ned who has literally just finished his a levels he's he can sort of take it or leave it to be perfectly honest funny I mean, he did read history at a levels so oh did he that's something funny you say that because when my kids were growing up my son was not remotely interested in war at all right whereas the girl to recognize in that evil way girls do she sensed an opportunity to steal her way into daddy's affections <laughs> by amazing. becoming daddy's war girl wow. so she came with me to endless trips to the imperial war museum by, well, well boy just kind of and how old are they now um 20 and 18 wow. and i've got another i've got another older one who i think was was, was more loyal with me on, on war the, i think the problem is you and i our generation we grew up in the shadow of, of, of the war we we were taught by people who'd actually yes, served. Absolutely, and it doesn't it just doesn't mean the same now. Not least because in the interim we've had other proper shooting wars, which have sort of taken over. In the if you're going to get excited about it, you you get excited about Afghanistan or in Iraq, don't you? Yes, I suppose it's not quite in the sort of DNA as it once was, but I do think people. I mean the. the I mean, I sort of look back at myself when I was a teenager and sort of what a feckless, useless individual I yeah. was, you know, and, and okay, I did history O-level and A-level and everything, but, you know, I, I knew absolutely nothing about Second World War, really, apart from, you know, I'd long got over action men and airfix models and commando comics. So, you know, it just didn't have any resonance with me whatsoever. I mean, I think one thing about history unlike many other academic subjects it is the one that one can return to in adult life post-education life mm. and actually get really into and you can say oh if only i had a teacher like x and you know when i was at school i might have been interested you know history yeah. is so boring at school but i've just read this book or i've seen this program or watched band of brothers or whatever it might be and, and that's what gets interesting of course the thing about history is you're more interested in it as you get on in life because your own life is becoming history yeah. and because you're more conscious of your mortality you know when you're 18 you know what do you care about anything you just care about sort of you know okay, so yeah yeah cricket and parties and yeah. you know going on holiday and exactly. surfing or whatever it might be so i think your outlook is so narrow do you do you i think that's i think that's the fundamental change between being sort of early 20s 
uh, and the kind of sort of age we are now is is you know I, I still look back at myself as sort of fundamentally exactly the same person you know a lot of my friends are friends from when I was at school or university they're still friends I still find the same things funny mm. but my my outlook has just got broader because I've seen stuff read stuff know more stuff you know married got kids all that kind of stuff do, do you worry that that your audience is is going to be somewhat finite in in that it's you're mainly talking to people of our age and older and that the well, people- no I don't think so and I think that's one of the really interesting things is I think um what I've really noticed is that through the television work I do mm. a lot of that's a much younger audience and what again what you find is a lot of those people that are watching that in their 20s and 30s by the time they get to sort of 40s and 50s they're reading books well let's hope so and it's really really interesting I mean I you know whenever I sort of enter my bubble which is kind of D-Day 75 commemorations or air shows at Duxford or something like that suddenly I get you know I get accosted quite a lot and that's it's very nice that's good stuff but most of them are younger people not older people what is the most exciting thing you've ever got to do uh, as a result of your, your military history career? It well, it's, it's an old cliche, yeah, but it is a Spitfire. I mean, it just was amazing. It was amazing. That's the that's the two seater Spitfire. Yeah, yeah it's two seater Spitfire, and that was great. But I had control for a bit, you know. So so Matt Jones, who was flying me, so so said, uh, okay, Jones, you you know you now have control. And I was like, what? This is just insane. Actually, the, the most special that was really special. But funny enough, the, the actual most special moment of the whole trip, and I was up there, I was doing a sort of film for them, a little sort of promo video for this this place of Goodwood where they, well, at that time it was at Oxford, um, and they were. They set up this school way, the, the Boltby Flight Academy, where you could actually, you know, if you've got some hours on your log, but you can actually train to fly a Spitfire solo. It's the only place in the world you can do it. So I was doing a sort of promo for them when they were first starting up. So I could actually, instead of kind of 20 minutes or 17 minutes or what you usually get, I actually had the best part of an hour, which was great. But but it was a lovely day. It was one of those those beautiful days where everything just all came together. Yeah. Uh, and there was lots of blue sky, but there was lots of fluffy white clouds as well. So it was just perfect. You know, so you could sort of, you know, Bastard. dance the... Surly Bonds or whatever it was. Uh, and, um, and what was lovely was taking off and seeing the the shadow of the iconic wing on the ground. And, of course, as you take off, it separates. And that was really good. But but Matt, very sweetly, did a kind of, you know, in those days you could still do this. He then did uh, sort of beat up the airfield, as they used to call it. So you sort of fly in down and low, do a really fast pass over the airfield, climb up and then do a victory roll. And, you know, you just think, I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh, I, mean, I, bet, just, I know, I bet. You know. So okay, um, but I've done lots of really exciting things. So I mean, you know, I, I'm simply that out. But I, I've been really lucky, and you know, enough, you know, I don't want to sound mawkish, but actually, all those, I mean, it's been a real privilege meeting all these veterans that I've met over the years. Mm. I mean, some of them, I mean, it is a bit like all walks of life. I mean, some you really, really like instantly, and you become friends with, and you keep in touch with, and you see all the time. Others, you sort of think, well, he was all right, uh, and others, you think, actually, he's a complete bastard, yeah. you know, and I just don't like you at all. Yeah. Um, but I've got to say, the latter very, very rarely. But it's been really special, you know, to interview sort of Mary and uh, from New Zealand who fought in North Africa, or or Germans, or you know, there was a set of identical twins from Alabama who who fought in North Africa, Sicily, and and landed on Omaha Beach on D Day. I re- I was reading about them only you know, last night. Yeah, to Tom and D Bowles, and they they were amazing, and it was just. It was just, you know, you were conscious when you were meeting them that you were meeting something very special. And also, you know, relationship with people like Tom Neal and Jeff Wellham. I mean, they've been, you know, you know, I got to meet Roland Beaumont. You know, I, I knew Winkle Brown. I mean, you know, these these are kind yes. of legends and they're, they're the kind of, you know, the, the word hero is sort of batted about too readily these days. But, you know, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm still starstruck by sort of meeting kind of rock stars or if I, if I ever met them. Um, but, and, you know, famous people. Yeah. Because I'm shallow and cheap. But, yeah. but, but. but 
those are the people that really count. I mean, that, that's I'd much rather meet one of them than. So you've you've sort of semi-answered my question. My question I was going to ask next, which is, if you'd been in World War Two, what would you have liked to have done? Well, I'd like to think I would have been a fighter pilot and joined Six A Nine Squadron and flew, you know, flown Spitfires and then rocket firing Typhoons. I think the sensible option where you could go through sort of having done your bit and really been at the the, the sharp end. But chances are you'd get through okay. It's probably be a kind of junior officer on a destroyer. That would be good, wouldn't it? You know, you, that's the risk hasn't gone out. There's plenty of destroyers that were sunk and lots of people drowned. By and large, though, you're all right because you know U-boats tend to concentrate on merchant vessels. You don't want to be on a merchant ship. Yeah, yeah. Even though actually the number of merchant ships sunk was actually comparatively small as well. And um, but 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 was it now? Well. It was so. Um, Britain started the war with ten thousand. They lost two thousand four hundred fifty-two. I think in the entire. So yeah, war. sort of a, a one in five chance, roughly. <sighs> yeah, yeah, overall, but it, but the, it depends on. Yes, you, I suppose you did. But what is really interesting, there was something like three hundred seventy-eight thousand individual Allied shippings during World War Two, right. of which seven thousand were sunk. So that works out, I think. At, 0.4%. Those are good odds, actually, um, compared to what well, I suppose Bomber Command was the worst. N- uh, no, actually, being a tor- um, for, from in the RAF, um, it was being a torpedo pilot in the Mediterranean was really bad. I think that was like what, sort of fairy swordfish, that kind of thing. Uh, no, bow fighters and things like that, bowfoots and stuff. Really? Yeah, you had like 17%. Why was that so dangerous? Uh, I suppose because you're operating at low, low rates over the sea. And no one even thinks of them now. I mean, you, no. if, if you if you no one thinks of coastal command. Thousand people had to guess what would be the worst branch of the services to be in. Worst. Well, in the RAF, that is right. Oh, okay. I mean, if you're in a tank, I mean, you had no chance of getting through un- unscathed. Statistically, that, no. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me give you an example. In 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 Normandy, for example, yep. the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. Yes. Um, in a tank regiment, you would have eight hundred men. Yeah. of which 200 would be in tanks the rest would be kind of B echelon so those are sport troops um, of those 36 would be officers just in the Normandy campaign alone they lost 44 officers out of how many? 36 <laughs> yes because they're being replaced and, yes, yes but uh, and other ranks who at tank crews was 175 right so to get th- that's just in Normandy Yeah. that's from 6th of June to you know 21st of August or whatever to get through to the end of the war I mean Statistically, you just have no chance. So, of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, there are two officers that leave in 1939 for Palestine that are still standing in 1945. You've presumably read my, my favourite tank book, Tank Action. Of course. I mean, how good is that book? It's amazing. I, I, I can't... I was reading it, I'm thinking, I cannot believe that this is this book is so so good. Yeah, and I can't believe it's so little known either. It's just it's absolutely amazing. What's his name? Remind me. Kent Out. I mean... It's amazing. That, that whole sequence at St. Ion, where he's coming up against Wittmann and co., yeah. And, and he has to go into, and I don't know if you remember, but but there's a bit where one of the troops gets completely shot up. Yeah. So his squadron is, uh, he's in some woods in his 75-pounder Sherman. Joe Eakins is further away in his Firefly with the 17-pounder. And, and they see the, the Tigers come across and take them out, which is Michael Vittman, the famous, yep. infamous Panzer yep. race. But there's another sequence where this troop goes down into this gully. It's like the size of a football, width of a football pitch. They go down to his gully, and the guy who's leading that troop is the kind of sort of, you know, he's the squadron joker, and he's grown a little hit on a moustache for a joke, and everyone loves him, and he's 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 an orphan, and he's got and he's got no family at all, and no one, you know, but everyone loves him in the his family is the regiment and the battalion, and and um, he goes in, and they hear him over the net, and 
it's clear that they've they've come up against something. And actually, it is um, Kentau, who's the gunner in his crew, who actually sees the Panzer IV, Mark IV, and takes it out and destroys it. But not long after that, they're told to go and investigate. So they creep down into this gully, into this sort of low area beneath these woods. And he and his Snowy, his commander, tank commander, get out and go and look. And he look, goes towards this tank and he can see it's his friend. I think he's called Jimmy. And you can see Jimmy just looking at him, like you're looking at me yeah. now, staring at him, but his eyes are completely dead. And he doesn't move. And he's absolutely dead as a dodo. And they all are. Every, every single one of the tanks has been taken out. And then he sees the, um, the, the, the dead panzer commander that he shot up. Um, and it's just... It's absolutely devastating. I, I don't think I've ever read a memoir, particularly of, of guys on the ground, where I have been. I've noticed that my heart rate is quickening yep. as I'm reading it. Yep. It's absolutely amazing. I just cannot believe it's not better known. It is one of the great sequences of war writing, in my humble opinion. And actually, when you then go there and you walk that ground and you go into that gully, it, it makes even more sense. You just see, oh, okay, I get how this all worked. One of the things that I, I really came across is that however bad we had it, in your Normandy book, this is. Well, uh, remind me what it's called. Normandy 40. It's called Normandy 44. No, it's Normandy 44, yes. Um, the Germans that you've interviewed have come up with the most horrific experiences. That, I, I mean, the Germans inevitably had it worse than we did. Because we were over, we had overwhelming air superiority. We had, well, we outnumbered them. Your descriptions of the MG42 gunners and their barrels melting mm. but where did you find these people well um some of them are interviewed and and some of them are sort of long forgotten memoirs some of them are you know published memoirs others you can find it um so some of them came from um the the german military archives at freiburg in the schwarzwald do you speak german i don't i can i can read bits of it right. i can read enough to know ah oh, this is important so what i tend to do is i've got um I've got I've got a great friend um, who well, I've got two lots of people who who are friends now um, who do I I set them off on kind of, sort of preliminary kind of can you check this out and they come back and they go okay we've got this 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 what do you think sounds interesting I go I'm coming over and we then spend a week going through stuff together right. so that that's how it works um, it's not ideal but you know what can you do? but that brings me to, to but but they are amazing these these testimonies and I. I would say one of the most moving interviews I've ever done is with a German veteran um, who was telling me about his war and he just kept breaking down in tears. And it was really interesting. And I kept saying to him, you know, you don't have to tell me this. He kept going, no, 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 I want to, I want to. And at the end of it, um, having sort of recovered his composure, he then just said, I've never told anyone what I've just told you. Uh, and I just thought, my God, you know, I mean, this guy was in his 80s by this point. You know, he's had to hold on to this all his life. And he's obviously just completely chewed him up. And... and our boys are kind of sort of venerated, quite rightly, and sort of patted on the back, and they would just sort of march down Whitehall with yeah. their flags and their berries, and, you know, we wear poppies, and we kind of think they're all heroes in the golden generation, which, of course, they are. But but is there any difference to a kind of 18-year-old recruit in Germany who is conscripted, who has no choice in what he's doing, who is fighting for, you know, his family, his friends, his village, um, and someone from, I don't know, Lincolnshire, who's kind of called up in exactly the same circumstances? Of course, the answer is absolutely no. I mean, there is a difference between a kind of sort of fanatical um, national socialist in a, in a kind of hardcore uh, um, Adolf Hitler, Leibstandarte kind of division, yeah. uh, and someone who's, you know, just doing their bit. And 
And I thought, how awful that you've got to sit there feeling guilty for kind of actually being incredibly brave and courageous and watching your mates get killed. Mm. I'm really, really tough. And then never talking about it and feeling ashamed about it. Where where'd your German been? On the Eastern Front? Or? No, he'd been in, um, he'd been in Italy, actually. But I got to, you know, I got became very good friends with a, with a, a lovely old chap called Franz Marsen, who was a baker from Dusseldorf, and he he'd twice been on the on the Eastern Front, twice wounded, got away, eventually ended up in Italy, and he was just amazing. I mean, he was the most most delightful fellow, and actually it's quite funny when he started his training in 1941, he was still doing kind of amphibious landing practice. I said, why were you doing that? And he goes, well, do, do, because we were going to invade Britain, of course. I went, yeah, but it's like spring of 1941, you're about to go into Russia. Uh, anyway, never an answer to that. Um, he said, but one thing I must say, oh, well, this was really sweet, was he, he had lots of photos of him and his wife all over the place. Yeah. His wife had sadly passed away, but he said, I was away from my wife so long in the war. He said, when I got back, I vowed I would never spend a night apart from her ever again, and I never did until she died, which is really sweet. And, um, but anyway, he says that after the war, my mother and I, we, we went on to Cross Channel Ferry, and we went to England. <laughs> and he said, and I saw the White Cliffs, and I said to myself, I said to my wife, we would never have successfully invaded. <laughs> Fair point. They never would have done. You earlier earlier on you mentioned about how you're excited about logistics, and I remember when I got the press release for your book, and it said this is going to tackle D-Day from a completely different angle. And you from, thought, yeah, yeah, no logistics, and I thought, oh, bloody hell, really? You know, I get it. And and actually, you had converted me within a few pages. Oh, good. The no, I, it is one of the best books I've read about D-Day, and it completely transforms the way that I understand the campaign and I, and I think anyone reading it will it will change their perspective on, on, on war you, well you, I hope so that's the whole give idea us, give us the give us the, the, the I'll the give you the spiel why, why it matters yeah. yes okay so war is understood to be fought for on three levels as our businesses run um, the strategic operational and tactical so strategic is the big overview this is Winston Churchill Adolf Hitler this is Eisenhower you know it's, it's, it's a high command uh, and what your overall aims are. You know, let's go into Italy. Let's not go into Italy. Um, let, let's carry on pushing through the Po Valley or let's let's do an invasion of southern France. Yeah. That's the strategic level. Um, the t- tactical level is the coalface of war. So that is your guy, your, your bomber crew. That is the guy in his foxhole or crew in their tank or whatever. The coalface of war, the actual fighting bit. And then there is the operational level. And that is the bit that links the strategic to the tactical. It's the bit that um, enables... Um, the tactical fighting to achieve the strategic aims. It is, uh, another way of putting it, it's, it's the nuts and bolts of war. It's the economics of war. It's supply. It's Hershey bars. It's cups of tea. It's ammunition. It's boots. It's shipping. It's all that stuff. It's factories. It's the Spitfire Fund. It's all that kind of stuff. Once you reinsert that operational level, then you can start to understand how and why nations are fighting in the way that they are fighting. Once you understand that, everything starts to change because the way we have told the narrative of the Second World War over the last 60 years, 50 years, has been almost entirely from the strategic and tactical levels only. And there is this big missing bit in the middle which is never included. And so everyone is is judging tactical prowess with the same parameters which is not the way to do it because everyone is different. So the Allies have the Western Allies have a completely different approach to war from the Germans. The Soviet Union has a completely different approach to the Germans or the Western Allies. It is just a totally different way. So so you can't sort of say you know the Germans are brilliant tactically and we're 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 crap because it's it's just not it's not like that. Tell me tell me the differences between the, the those three you named. 
the Allies, well, the, the Russians and the well. So, so in the case of the, the Soviet Union and the and the Germans, they're very kind of boots on the ground heavy, which I think you can argue and argue convincingly is an incredibly inefficient way of war because basically the more men you use, the more casualties you're going to have. Mm. Um, whereas the Western Allies are using steel, not flesh, as far as they possibly can. They're incredibly modern nations. They're first world. They're superpowers. They have global reach, and they're using that global reach, that 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 technology, modernity, science to limit the number of men actually having to do the hard yards at the coalface of war. And that is an incredibly sensible way of going about things. And it means you're not going to have a massive slaughter of, a, of an entire generation like you did for the British a generation before, or, or like the Germans, the Americans have never experienced. And, and they're better people for that. And that is because fundamentally they're warfare states, or Americans become a warfare state, but they're not militaristic states. Right. And militarism is, is all tied up with nationalism uh, and, and is martial in its entire outlook. Everything is about kind of military gains. And so it's just a completely different way of doing it. So the Germans are not particularly dependent on high levels of training. What they're dependent on is high levels of discipline, which is not the same thing whatsoever. Whereas the Allies are having to depend on morale much more than anyone else. And they achieve that morale by having their men properly supplied and looked after and having penicillin and Hershey bars and cups of tea. But the Germans could do some, some shit really well, couldn't they? I mean, yeah. for example, what, was it called Mission Command, where, where, where you get... Yeah, this work, okay, so this bit is actually, this is one of those things that's completely overstated. There's a thing called Alstrug Tactic, which, which in post-war we've become terribly obsessed with. And one of the reasons we were terribly obsessed with it is because in the Cold War, where yeah. all, the, all the generals and all the people at the top of the army now, yeah. they all know about this stuff, because when they were junior officers, the Cold War was still on. Yeah. And, um, and that's what they're fighting. And the only people to have fought the Russians were, of course, the Germans. Yeah. So after the war, there was this huge program of interrogating you know, se- senior commanders, next tier down commanders and getting the so so you know how did you do it what yeah. did you do and they all and of course what the what the germans are doing is they kind of you know we never liked hitler um it you know wasn't we were only obeying orders but the reason why we're so brilliant is because so they're putting this incredibly good gloss on their own military expertise but one of the things they talk about is is initiative and 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 use and and, and um, actually it's called it's it's called zelb right. which is um um, the ability is, is about, it's not the ability, it's about um, giving um, a junior subaltern the tools of the job and yep. then making their own decision. Right. And that has become interpreted as Alstrad tactic. But you will never meet a German veteran who's ever heard of the phrase Alstrad <laughs> really? tactic. It's, just, it's, it's, it's kind of much higher up the level and it's, and it's tactical theory rather than doctrine. Right. Uh, uh, whereas... This sort of giving people, giving people um, the tools to do the job, and then a minimum amount of orders, giving them a, a junior officer the the ability to use his own initiative. That's basically what we're talking about. Yeah. Is what we're talking about with mission command. Right. So, so the basic idea is, I want you to go and capture Vincent Square, um, just around the corner from here. Yeah. I'm going to give you this, 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 this. How you do it, when you do it, is entirely up to you. But yeah. I want it done by nightfall. Whereas. Very prescriptive orders would go, right, I want you to do this, I want you to attack from the south end, you know, come yeah. off Hyde, Hyde Street and then go on to the kind of, you know, Vauxhall Bridge Road and then you attack from the kind of the west or whatever. You know, that, that would be much more prescriptive. The, the problem with that is that only works for people who are motivated in the first place. Yes. So that was fine with paratroopers or commandos or yeah. SAS, but it doesn't work with ordinary troops and it doesn't work in the German army with ordinary troops either. So you've got to, it, it is entirely connected to motivation. So so an American airborne soldier, for example, I mean, Dick Winters, a break or manner, taking out his four guns. Yes. He is doing that. 
And yes. he, the reason he's doing that is because he's volunteered to do it. He's keen to get better. He wants to do it. He's happy to, to use his, his initiative. And he is thinking on his feet. That, that is a classic example of Mission Command. It's like Winters, right, get four men together, go and take out those four guns. That, that is Mission Command. That yeah. is what everyone calls astrotactic. Yes. There is no difference between that and the Germans at all. Interesting. And, and but this- if you were talking to, you know, uh, I mean, it was a very interesting guy called, called um, um, Lionel Wigram, who, uh, Lionel Wigram was, was a sort of pioneer of the battle schools. So the battle schools were originally set up by General Alexander. And this was the idea that, you know, you've got a conscript army, give them simple orders, give them training with live ammunition so they kind of, they know what to expect. But don't expect too much because they're conscripts and they don't want to be there. And... Uh, Lionel Rigan was very into this and he got a job as a seconded to frontline battalions during the Sicilian campaign to observe and kind of, you know, hone the battle schools a bit better. And when he came back, he said, what's absolutely apparent is in a 36-man platoon, only six people will move forward. Everyone else just wants to be led. So you'll only have, you know, it'll be your section commanders, maybe your platoon sergeant. You know, they, those are the guys, those are the backbone. Uh, and those are the people that basically do all the hard yards. Everyone else is just followers. And, and if you can get them to actually be useful, then good luck. And he did a speech about it. Monty heard about it, thought it was absolutely catastrophic for morale if this got out, sacked him, um, made him demoted, uh, dropped him down a rank from half colonel to major, sent him over to Italy where he's probably killed. His grandson, incidentally, is now a really successful film producer, works with Guy Ritchie. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but really, really interesting. Do you think that's why? Because you and I have both interviewed a few veterans in our time. And, and what, one thing you often hear them say is that no, I'm not a hero. The ones that the ones that are heroes are the ones that never made it. And I th- I wonder whether it's partly that level of the, the, the people those six in the platoon tend to be the ones that get killed. And then uh, I suspect there's something of that in it. Um, I think there's kind of survivor's guilt. Yeah. So it's very interesting. On uh, last Thursday, on on the D-Day anniversary, I was at Bayer. And and we did the uh, the BBC coverage. Then afterwards, I was I I saw this guy in a wheelchair um, coming towards me, and uh, so this French historian I was with and I went over and started to talk to him. And he was he was called Frederick, um, and he had just discovered a grave of a man he remembered being killed. Right. And um, he was he's about to be a hundred in November. He said, "Oh, I'm looking forward to that," which is great. <laughs> he was very game, uh, and. Um, he told me, he said, I remember this boy being killed, and he was 20. So it was 80 years this guy had had that this other guy hadn't had. And we were all thinking the same thing. We just suddenly thought, God, you know, this amazing passage of time that you've had that he hasn't. And he said, you know, we were being shelled. We were being shelled really, really heavily. And he suddenly went a bit mad, and he just got up and started charging towards the Germans, and they gunned him down. So I can remember it really, really clearly. And he was quite shaken by the fact that he'd suddenly seen the grave. Yeah. And it was just this big, deep moment that we were all, all of us were conscious that that the enormity of what had happened, the enormity of this passage of time, the enormity of the fact that this guy was now about to be 100 and, you know, was nearing his end and all the extra time he'd got and everything. It was, it was really profoundly moving, I've got to say. I'm conscious that you've got to go any second now. Um, and before you go, I want to just draw attention, listeners' attention, special friend, as they're known, um, to, <laughs> to the fact that, like like your point about Mission Command, your book is very much about exploding exploding myths and, and the, the received ideas that so many of us have got about, about the war. And one of them you explode is that Montgomery was a bit of a, a bit shit. You, 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 you seem to yeah, be quite keen Yeah, so I, I, I rather laid into to Monty for his... I don't think tactically he was particularly brilliant. 
Um, uh, but I don't think that the Allied way of war that had been worked out by 1944 requires a massive tactical genius. I don't think that's what it's about. I think what it is about is about harnessing material wealth and, and solidly grinding down the Germans. And that doesn't require tactical chutzpah. What, you know, Carlo Deste famously kind of wrote an entire book sort of rubbishing Monty's plan for D-Day. Now, the first thing to point out is the plan isn't entirely Monty's. Now, OK, he's overall land commander, but that doesn't... And he might have be overall architect, but the detail of it has nothing to do with him. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I just think it's the best plan that could possibly have been put into place with the resources they got available. And the limiting factor is shipping. It's not men or, or guns or anything. Although he did, he was responsible for dreaming up Market Garden, wasn't he? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, okay. But but he wasn't responsible for creating the, the Allied Airborne Army. Um, and you've got this huge airborne army, and everyone's been slightly stunned by the rate of advance, which, after all, was faster in the two weeks that followed the Normandy campaign than the German advance across France back in 1940. It was the quickest advance on any front anywhere in the Second World War. And and it looked like there was an opportunity to burst through, which is why they don't go for the shell. You know, they go, they go right, let's get these earlier ports, let's back ourselves up, and let's, we've got this huge airborne army. This is not an airborne division, this is an airborne army absolutely bristling with testosterone with the kind of ability to use their initiative that other ordinary troops don't yeah. they are among the best trained troops that america and britain has who are just absolutely itching to go and it seems like an opportunity to get in round the top of the incredibly strong west wall in in what looks like a comparatively you know, there's risks involved, of course, but if that can burst through, then it's got to be worth a punt. You're very No, it wasn't. The, well, I don't think it was the right decision, right. but I can, I can understand the thought processes by right. which you might do it. You know, if you've got all these forces, you've got to use them. I think the, the failing is probably putting too much emphasis on airborne power without training up... You know, so what you've basically got is the best trained troops delivered to the battlefront by the least trained aircrew. And there's a sort of disparity there which has never been quite worked out in the Second World War. And and that's an issue. Um, but I don't think the general concept is quite so bad as everyone makes out. And I think the, the original plan that Dempsey puts forward, which is a little further south, which would involve doing a little bit more kind of sort of on the side of the Americans rather than kind of pushing north. I think that, that sort of comes into it. Just before we go, I want you to explain briefly your insight into Omaha Beach and the machine guns and the, and the melting barrels. Because oh, right. traditionally we think of Omaha Beach as, as a thing that we almost didn't get ashore because of blah, blah, blah. But actually, yes, and, and Bradley was thinking of turning back. And, and yeah. you know, the whole thing was sort of saving Private Ryan in the first 20 yes. minutes across the board. I mean, well, the interesting thing about it is it just it wasn't. I mean, there were moments where it was absolutely terrible. In, in the initial waves, the Verville draw, which is on the kind of um, western side of it, of the five-mile slightly concave Omaha Beach um, and it sort of the Colville draw which is at sort of the other end the initial moments were pretty bad I mean two of the one of the reasons why two of the platoons were killed was was because mortars landed in the landing craft so that's got nothing to do with machine guns um, and that was terrific but it's interesting in the, even in that first wave if you got down a little bit further further in the middle there were plenty of people that were getting across kind of you know one wounded kind of two dead or one dead and three wounded or no wounded at all i mean you know really got okay i mean the key thing was to keep moving and i think the interesting thing is is we we, we tell that because of movies because of hollywood because of the narrative of it we kind of tend to kind of tell that purely through the experience of the americans but just imagine being a german you know you're really badly trained you're really badly equipped this is the first action you've ever seen for the vast majority of them. 
Um, you don't want to be there. You're not motivated. You're not a fanatical Nazi. You just think you've got the kind of worst, pulled the worst straw ever. You wake up in the haze, misly haze of that morning, and you look out in the sky sea is black with landing craft and warships and first of all hundreds of bombers come over and bomb you okay not very accurately but who cares the whole ground shakes the cacophony is absolutely enormous dust and smoke and bits of concrete are shaking all over the place it's absolutely grim and then the warships open up and i think it's really important that we understand what we're talking about here so on the crust are 13 strong points. And the strong point is sort of a collection of different bunkers, a mortar bunker, a little zigzag trench, a gun bunker, this sort of thing. Uh, and they're all mutually supporting. And and total is about 350 men manning those against thousands of Americans. What you've got is 15 field guns there, 20 anti-tank guns, of which there are only two 88mm calibre. The calibre is the, is the diameter of the shell they fire. So obviously the bigger the calibre, the, 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 caliber, the bigger the shell that's coming towards you. Um, but most of those guns are 50mm and 75mm, which in the big scheme of things against warships is, you know, diddly squad. Yeah. Against them are 183 guns of 90mm calibre and above, and some of them are 240mm. No. You know, they're 15-inch guns. I mean, you know, they're really seriously big. And they're hurtling in towards you all the time. And that doesn't include kind of, you know, Bofors guns and Ehrlichans and, not Ehrlichans, but, but you know, cannons and things, quick-firing cannons and pom-poms and stuff like that, which, because there's no Luftwaffe, are, are turned uh, uh, 90 degrees to the, to the, to the horizontal. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's just an unbelievable way to fire. And every time one of those shells comes in, even if it doesn't actually hit your bunker, it's going to make you duck. And quite a lot of them are going to hit your bunker. Now, quite a lot of them are not going to completely destroy your bunker. But every time it hits, just imagine the sound of that. You're in there. You've got no earplugs. You know, dust is coming around, smoke, grit, bits of concrete flying off and chipping off. You know, what's going to happen when you're manning your machine gun? Are you going to carry on? firing through the through the smoke of course you're not you know and and very quickly the whole place is covered with smoke and dust and you can see absolutely diddly squat and you can see vague figures kind of coming off landing crafts and you keep firing and now it is verboten to fire one of these mg42s for more than 240 rounds but when you're firing at 23 rounds a second it doesn't take very long it's like 11 seconds worth of firing then you're supposed to pause let it all cool down change barrel or something but of course you're not going to you're going to keep firing until you're kind of blue in the face and what happens when you every single one of those 23 bullets there's a little explosion in the breach and when you do that 23 times a second that is a heck of a lot of heat and what happens is very quickly it goes red hot then it goes white hot you know the grass either side of you gets catches fire and and you're just spraying bullets everywhere and so all accuracy is gone. And what that means is, but if you're on the ground, as long as you keep moving, chances are most of you will be okay. Right. It's, it's the initial ways when the ramps come down before all the shelling has really started. There's a pause in the naval gunfire because the troops are just landing. So that's when they can see. And that is when the slaughter happens. Total dead on Omaha Beach, Allied troops, and I say Allied advisedly because a lot of the, the coxswains and crew coming in with the landing craft are British because three-quarters of the landing craft are British and crewed by British Royal Navy, um, is 842, which is a lot. But I suspect most people think it's kind of two or three times more than that. Indeed. And also, total casualties for D-Day were not as great as in, opera- in Operation no, Tiger. No, expe- they're especially worst case scenario kind of 40,000. It's more like sort of 10 or 11. But didn't, and casualties is not dead. Didn't That's, more die training for D-Day than actually killed on, on D-Day? 
Yes. Yeah. But don't forget, training for two years, so right. it's quite a long time rather than one day. But uh, it, it's just, you know, well, the other thing that's absolutely clear is that Braddy had no intention of pulling them out at all because he didn't know what was going on till about one o'clock in the afternoon when his his um, chief aide and chief of staff, who he sent to the coast, and you're not going to send your chief of staff, who's a general, until unless you're pretty confident they're going right. to be okay. So they come back and go, no, you know, it's it's all under control, which it was. Frankly, it was all over by about 9.30. I mean, it wasn't because the fighting went on until the afternoon, but the outcome was no longer in doubt. Uh, and he's absolutely fine. And what's really interesting is post-war, Braddy writes two autobiographies. In the first one, he doesn't mention anything about kind of, you know, uh, considering pulling pulling them out. In the second one, which is written much later, he does, by, by which time the whole narrative of Bloody Omaha has kind of taken root. Right. I'm going to say to, to the listener, special friend, Buy the book, Normandy 44. It's really, really good. James, will you promise me you'll come on the podcast again? Yes, it'd be an utter pleasure. It's been good. a joy. Marvellous. Thank Listen you. Listen to Delling Pod with James Holland, author of several brilliant books, Normandy 44 being the latest. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.